you might be surprised that there are people around the world that listen to this class. I get response from a lot of different people as far away as Australia. And um, they often comment on sometimes we don't shut off the recording and we have questions and answers coming in and uh, they'll comment on that and they comment, they say you have a couple of gentlemen that lead in very nice prayers. So John and Doug have been uh, heard around the world. So that's good. Um, it just shows, you know, a small little group meeting in a home and a little out of the way place. You never know. You never know the impact that it'll have around the world. So it's a wonderful thing to consider. We're going to resume. I, in our last class, if you remember, I was going to try to get through Hebrews 9 and we got to verse 14. So we're going to just quickly review a little bit about verse 14. And then we're going to see if we can finish the chapter. We're going to be gone next week, right? And then we'll be back the following Friday. I hope the following Friday that I can kind of do at least an overview of Hebrews 10. I'd like to be able to, to kind of view the entire chapter because it is one of the most important chapters in the book. And I think it would be good for us if we could kind of see the scope of the chapter. And then when we get back from Australia, we'll pick it up and go into more detail. So we're going to resume in Hebrews 9.14, if you would. Uh, open your Bibles there. Uh, I don't, I can't remember what the last uh, notes were that I gave you. I think, I think we covered the eighth chapter. I don't think I gave you chapter nine yet. And I'm not quite finished with the ninth chapter. I've got some cleaning up to do on it. Um, so uh, hopefully next time when I come, I can at the very least bring you chapter 9 and maybe an overview of chapter 10. So, I got page 49. Is that yeah, I have no idea what that chapter is. Eight. <laughs> chapter 8. The covenant. <laughs> yeah, I'm on, I'm on page 54 here, so got it. We're, we're moving quite a ways along beyond that. At any rate, let's approach the throne of God's grace together and let's ask his blessing on our time together as we uh, look into his word and grow in grace and uh, pray that God the Holy Spirit will guide us. Let's take just a moment of silence before we begin. It's always good for us to prepare ourselves, make sure that there's nothing in our lives that would interfere or intrude or be an obstacle to growing in grace. You know, at any moment of, of our life, we're either in fellowship or not. Uh, to be in fellowship means that there's nothing standing between us and the Lord. And if there is, and God brings something in conviction into our mind, it's a very simple thing to confess that issue and receive the forgiveness that he promises will always be there. And we are immediately restored to fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So... Just a moment of silence and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, as we bow our, our hearts and our minds before you this evening, 
we realize that we are living in a time of great historical crisis. And while there are many things on the horizon and many conditions that could cause us concern, we realize that Jesus Christ controls history. We realize that no matter how dark the day, no matter how difficult it may get, everything is working toward a grand conclusion in which Christ will be crowned and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Father, as we open your word this evening, we pray that God the Holy Spirit will supply us with the spiritual armor and the spiritual weaponry and the spiritual ammunition that we need for the time in which we live. Because we realize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We wrestle and wage war against the world rulers that are behind the scenes, uh, those that are pulling the strings of many world leaders, uh, those who are deceiving the nations. Father, it may seem insignificant that we meet here in Camp Verde in a home with a small gathering, and yet we do understand that the impact of our gathering together, of our study and our prayers, can actually, actually begin ripples that will change the course of human history. So, Father, use this time tonight to edify the saints and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 9.14 is really the center of the ninth chapter. And verse 13, of course, is the contrast. He says in verse 13, If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. In other words, going back to Leviticus chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, the cleansing ceremonies for anyone that was declared unclean, either because they had failed in some way or possibly had come into contact with a dead body. There were many, many ways they may have come into contact with a leper uh, or another diseased person. There were many, many ways in which a person could become ceremonially unclean. And in our modern age, we often ask ourselves the question, why all of these intricate rules and regulation about what's clean and unclean and how to be cleansed when you're unclean? And of course, all of it, as the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us, was a shadow that was pointing forward to the need of every member of the human race for the cleansing that only Christ could provide. So if it's true, the author is saying, that back in those days, your conscience could be eased, you could be at peace with the cleansing that was provided ritually by God, then how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the cleansing here is really looking at setting us free from any need to uh, try some ritual, to try some vow, to take some oath, to make some promise. You know, so many times the whole idea in the Roman Catholic Church is penance. All right, you've done this sin, it's not a biggie, so you're going to do a little bit of penance, but then you've done another sin and it's a really big one, and so you're going to have to, you know, do some really extreme penance, 
so that you can work yourself back into God's good favor. All of that is dead works. And once Christ died on the cross and once the veil in the temple ripped from top to bottom, all of the rituals and all of the ceremonies and all of the activities of the Jewish Levitical system that had been carried on for 1,400 years was finished. In the eyes of God, it was no longer valid. And why was that? Because it was all fulfilled. Everything that it was looking forward to, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of animals that had been sacrificed over a period of 1,400 years could not cleanse one sin. And yet Christ on the cross in three hours paid the penalty for the sins of the entire world. So how much more should the Son of God offering himself on the cross on our behalf cleanse our conscience from making any effort to win God's favor, to merit his grace, but simply to realize that it's provided for us by grace through faith. That's the point of the author. And the cleansing of the conscience also has with it the idea of bringing us a sense of peace. You know, Paul says in Romans 5 and verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That peace that we are given the moment we trust Christ as Savior is a permanent state. We are always at peace with God. In other words, we have been reconciled. The idea of reconciliation is that two antagonistic parties or two parties that have been alienated have now been united together in bonds of friendship and bonds of fellowship. Having been reconciled with Christ, there is always going to be that status of peace. But you know as well as I do that that is not always the state of our mind. While we may be in a perpetual, continual state of peace with God, as far as our eternal future is concerned, moment by moment and day by day, we are troubled. We have decisions that we have to make. We have burdens that are weighing on us. We question what would God have us to do. We struggle when we come to crossroads in life. Does he want me to go left or right? All of us know these struggles. We have to deal with a difficult coworker who is constantly riding us, pushing us, goading us, trying to get us to react in an unchristian way because they're waiting for that opportunity to say, oh, that's great Christian that you are. And we've all had those situations. So we're not always at peace in our conscience, in our heart, in our soul on a moment by moment basis. So the author of the book wants us to understand peace is our birthright, peace is our position in Christ, but how can we have peace moment by moment? He's gonna develop that all the way through chapter 10, 11 and 12 and into chapter 13. So for right now, we're going to talk about in verses 11 through 28 in the remainder of the chapter, four things. And this leads us from the peace that we have positionally, if I can picture it like this. We all live in two circles. One is our position and one is our practice. 
our practice is not always equal to our position. Our position is a position of peace with God. Our practice is often trouble. So what happens when we're out here in the world and we're dealing with questions that are causing a, an upset within our soul, a disturbance within our soul, uh, you know, wrestling going on about what to do, what to think, how to act, or so on. He's going to deal with that and he'll bring us to that by the end of the chapter. So here are the four things that we're going to deal with. I'll just write them up here real quick. We are going to deal with, number one, a perfect priest, Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of a priest? The priest is the go-between between us and God. We have a perfect priest. No one ever had that before. No one in the Old Testament had that. Though they had a high priest that would make a sacrifice for himself and for the nation that would go into the Holy of Holies, he was an imperfect priest. He was also himself sinful. We have a perfect priest. This perfect priest serves in a perfect tabernacle. This is not an earthly tabernacle. This is not a shadow tabernacle. This is not a temporary tabernacle. It's heaven itself. He is serving us right now. If you stop and think for a moment of the Old Testament people, as the priest would go in to offer the offering on the Day of Atonement, and they knew that if God rejected his sacrifice, he would be struck dead, and he goes into the Holy of Holies and you're out there praying and you're praying, oh God, please accept this sacrifice. Please accept the blood of this offering on behalf of the priest, on behalf of us, the people. And then the priest reemerges. Well, we have a priest who has entered and he stays there. Not in an earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself. This priest serving in this tabernacle offers the perfect sacrifice himself. He offers himself in our place. And the result is perfect security for the believer. And we're going to see, and it'll come out in our class this evening, and then when we come back in Hebrews chapter 10, I always love it when I, as I've traveled around the world, and the one question that has come up more than any other question, can a believer lose their salvation? And when my answer is no, they always want to go to the book of Hebrews, which I love. It's kind of like when I talk with Calvinists, I always like to go to Romans chapter 9, and Romans chapter 9, they think is the stronghold of their position, and I show them that it isn't. It actually is the opposite of their position. Well, we come to Hebrews, and they start quoting all the passages that they think seem to show that you can lose your salvation, and I begin to demonstrate to them that no book in the Bible is more secure, more stable, more sure on the issue of the security of a believer than the book of Hebrews, and we'll see that tonight. So in this, uh, in this section, the author is going to use the term once. 
let's just read for a little bit. Let me go through, uh, now I'll go through 15, 16, maybe 17. It says, for this reason, that is because the blood of Christ should cleanse our conscience. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. In other words, when Christ died, he wasn't just dying for those who came after him. He was dying for the sins of all those who had come before him. They were saved by faith, just like we are saved by faith, and their sins were all poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. That those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the uh, death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Uh, we are going to see that the author takes us not only from the idea of the new covenant, but the idea of the last will and testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what he shows us here is that Christ's sacrifice brings not only uh, perfect peace and security, but he also brings us eternal redemption and eternal inheritance. Notice there in verse 15, he is the mediator. We could go to 1 Timothy 2.5, which tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and men, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Remember that the word mediator is the word mesites, transliterated M-E-S-I-T-E-S. -E we would call it a go-between. But the idea of the mediator in biblical terms is someone who is equal to both parties. You remember Job's lament in Job chapter 9, I believe it's in verse 33, where he says, Oh, that there was a mediator who could lay his hand on us both. In other words, I wish there were someone who could deal with us taking care of God's concerns, but also taking care of my concerns. The idea of someone who had the best interest of both parties at heart. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ brings us that redemption of the transgressions, both for Old and New Testament saints, so that those who are called, by the way, who are the called? Hold your place here, because this is, this is the, I hadn't planned on doing this. Here we go, I probably won't finish the chapter, but. <laughs> We got to do this. Turn with me. If you hold your place, turn with me. Let's go back to the book of Matthew. We need to allow the Bible to interpret its own terms. Let's go back to Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Jesus answered in verse 1 and spoke to them again by parables. Remember that parables are earthly stories with spiritual and heavenly meanings. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Imagine that. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Who did the call go out to? 
everyone. Everybody's invited. Come to the wedding of the king's son. Notice the end of chapter of verse three. They were not willing. Whose fault was that? Is it the king's fault? No. Is it the messenger's fault? No, it's their fault. The invitation was there. It was open and free. They rejected it. Verse 4, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fatted cattle are killed. <clears throat> All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it. They went their way, one to his farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. And of course, you can see the parallel of this to the prophets through the ages. Verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Did that happen? Absolutely. The city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those that were invited were not worthy. By the way, there's a passage where uh, the apostle Paul uh, speaks to uh, the religious leaders and he said, you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because they rejected Christ. Those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite them to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and they gathered together everyone that they found, both bad and good. You know what the church is full of? Bad and good people. There's a little bit of bad in every good person and a little bit of good, and I'm using good here humanly speaking, not from God's perspective. From God's perspective, there is none good, no, not one. The bad and the good are brought in. They, they begin to fill the wedding hall. Verse 11, when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there that did not have a wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now I'm going to stop right here because a lot of people interpret this to say this is what's going to happen to believers who don't have a clean garment. What Jesus is talking about here is something that actually happened. The king is God. He is the son. He is going to have a wedding. The wedding is with the church. The people who reject and their city, the Jews and Jerusalem, are going to be burned up. Was there ever a case where a guy came in without a wedding garment? Absolutely, because the wedding feast began where? It began in the upper room. The upper room was the beginning of the wedding feast. And Jesus made it very clear to the disciples, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine again until I drink it new with you in my kingdom at the wedding feast. Who came into that wedding feast in the upper room without a wedding garment? Judas. Judas. And he was cast out. Do you remember what John said when he went out? And Judas went out and it was night. The physical being an illustration of the spiritual. He went out into the darkness. So all of this is very, very real if we just understand it properly. But the whole point of me taking this side trip is verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now, you tell me by Jesus' own interpretation, who are the 
chosen. Everyone. Who are the chosen? How many were called? Everyone. Everyone. How many were chosen? The ones that responded to the call. How do you become a member of the elect? You respond to the call by faith. Who is the ultimate elect one? Jesus Christ. You put on the wedding garment. Sorry? You put on the wedding garment. Right. You put on the wedding garment by faith in Christ. Right? So, when we find ourselves here in Hebrews 9, those who are called believers may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And that eternal inheritance, of course, is the kingdom and all that is involved. And it's going to uh, include, uh, obviously, total conformity to the person of Jesus Christ, total glorification in a glorified body. Uh, there is going to be, obviously, reward for that which is done by faith in this life and so on and so forth, but we all, every child of God, and I have to stress this because there is a very widespread teaching out there that uh, some believers, because they falter, because they fall, because they stumble, because they stagger, uh, they are the ones that are thrown into outer darkness. That is a totally false teaching of God's word. If you are a child of God, you have an inheritance from Jesus Christ. He's going to tell us in just a couple of verses that we share in the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. For where there is a testament, we would call this a last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Uh, if you've ever had someone who left, your, in your, left you in their will, you don't get the will before they die. They have to die first, and then the will is read, and then the conditions of the will are carried out. Well, the astounding thing about Jesus Christ is he writes the will, he dies to put the will in force, he's resurrected to apply and enforce his own will. That's a pretty awesome idea right there. So Jesus Christ dies to put the will in force. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant, he shifts now from the idea of will to covenant, was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant God has commanded to you. We're going to see shortly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But the author's point is, in order for the covenant to be put in force, there had to be sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrifice of a substitute, animals. Obviously, if God sacrificed the people, there wouldn't be anybody there to receive the covenant. So the covenant required a sacrifice, and the sacrifice was a substitute of the animals that were used. In the same way, the new covenant is put into force through the sacrifice of Christ. 
Verse 21 says, Likewise he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and all the vessels of ministry, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. By the way, the author is being very accurate here because not all things were purified with blood. Most things were. He says almost. All things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The word remission refers to forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. Correct? Death requires the shedding of the blood. I mean, you can die other ways. Someone can strangle you to death. But the shedding of blood is the normal way for death to occur. As the blood is shed, the life is uh, passed out and the person dies. Christ offers himself as our sacrifice, shedding his blood in our place. And there's a lot of emphasis through the book of Hebrews to the blood of Christ. And I want to, I told you in our last class that I would go into a little more detail about this. So I'm going to, believe it or not, I'm going to simplify this for you. I could, this, this is a doctrine that could go on and on and on. We could spend pages on it. I'm going to give you five points. I'm giving you the elementary version of the doctrine of the blood of Christ. This is something that you will probably never hear in any church that you'll ever go to. The doctrine of the blood of Christ. Why do I say that? We sing songs. I mentioned this in our last class. Plunge me beneath the fountain of blood. And the only thing we can think about is the literal blood gushing from the veins of Christ. And that's all that's ever taught. But when the Bible uses the term the blood of Christ, it's talking about much, much more. It is so difficult for us to realize that physical things that are used as a teaching aid in the Bible refer to much, much greater spiritual things. Every time Jesus told a parable, he was telling an earthly story about natural and physical things, but it had a much, much greater, deeper spiritual meaning. Well, there's probably no term in the Bible that is less understood and yet is more critical to our salvation than the term blood of Christ. Believe it or not, I have been... Uh, I had a church that considered me as a pastor in Australia and they took issue with what I'm about to teach you and because I stood firm on it, they refused to accept me as pastor. Uh, they said that it was a superstition. They said that it was, uh, you know, some human idea, uh, human doctrine. And the funny thing is later on, they got a pastor and the pastor taught this doctrine. So they got it in the end, so to speak. Most churches don't teach on the blood anymore. Well, yeah, they don't even teach on the blood, much less teach the meaning of it. So I'm going to give you five quick points. Throughout the Old Testament, and I'm going to abbreviate here, in the Old Testament, the term blood is a reference to life. 
The term blood is a reference to life. Genesis 4.10. You remember in Genesis 4 what happened? Cain kills Abel and God says, the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground. Well, gee, that's weird. Here Abel was faithful and Abel offered a faithful sacrifice and God was pleased with his sacrifice and now the only thing he's concerned about is the blood that's laying on the ground. No, blood means life. The life of your brother that you took is crying out to me from the ground. In Genesis 9-6, you'll remember in the covenant God made with Noah, what did he say? Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. If you shed a man's blood, what do you do? You take away his life. If you take away the life of a man, guess what you have to give in exchange? Your life. So the idea of blood, and it runs all the way through in the Old Testament with the animal sacrifice, the blood of the sacrifice, what's it talking about? An innocent life. An innocent life that did nothing wrong, that had absolutely no reason to be put to death, was put to death, and that life was taken as a substitute and a sacrifice on our behalf. That's the first thing that we need to understand. Secondly, when animal sacrifices were offered, the symbolism was, and I really just said this, an innocent life, blood, for the guilty. An innocent life was being offered on behalf of a guilty person. Much more meaning than simply the blood. The blood was symbolic of that which was taking place. If you uh, just look down at, uh, well, really, that's the whole point of uh, verses 18 to 21 that we just read. Why sprinkle everything with blood? Why establish a covenant through blood? Because what was God telling them? If I take the innocent life of an animal and I sprinkle the book, the tabernacle, the people, all of the articles, I sprinkle all of this with the life blood of this animal. What happens if you then are guilty of violating all of it? Your blood is forfeit. Your blood is the penalty. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death and blood. His blood I will require from him. What does that mean? I will require his life. Okay? This begins to expand our thinking so that when we see the terms blood of Christ, we're really thinking in much, much bigger terms than normally uh, we would think. Third, when the Bible speaks about the blood of Christ... It is inclusive of the totality of his sacrifice. So we would say the blood of Christ is a reference to his life. What did he lay down for us? 
It's not just that when they punched that crown of thorns on his head, he bled. By the way, he wouldn't have bled very much. Crown of thorns, few drips. When they scourged him, he would have bled a lot. They ripped the skin from his back probably down to the rib cage. Scourging was extremely br brutal. Then they drive the spikes between the two bones of the forearm and the, and the feet. Not a lot of blood would have come out of there because you just don't bleed that much from being punched by a nail. But what's the point? If the only thing we think about is the physical pouring out of blood, we have a very superficial understanding of what Christ has done on our behalf. But when we start thinking that in the Old Testament, the blood of the sacrifice meant the life of the animal or the blood of the man meant the life of the, of the, of the, the man himself. And then we take the blood of Christ and we say Christ shed his blood. Literally, he poured out his life. By the way, what kind of life was it? Just another human life? A perfect life? He lived from birth until death without ever breaking the law. Imagine that. That's, that's really beyond our ability to even comprehend. Never an evil thought, never a, a foul word, never uh, impure motive of any kind through his entire life. But guess what? That doesn't even encompass it. Because not only was it the life of a perfect sinless man that had never violated the law, it was a life of God in human flesh. Now we begin to capture what the author is trying to get across. How much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now we begin to see what it's all about. So the blood of Christ, Isaiah 53.12 makes an interesting statement. It says he poured out his soul in death. That's the idea of the blood. Christ poured out his soul in death. The beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, what were all of those things a symbol of? Again, take the physical and move it to the spiritual. The spiritual is always greater than the physical. What did Isaiah say? It pleased the Father to bruise him. It pleased the Father to chasten him. All of the physical things that happened to him were a picture of something we couldn't see. The outpouring of the wrath of God on him because of our sin. Not just the outpouring of God's wrath for one person. The outpouring of God's wrath for every person who's lived from Adam to the last person on the planet for every sin that has ever been committed and his life that he poured out was sufficient to pay for that. I don't know about you, but I'm humbled when I think about that. That was actually point four, Isaiah 53, 12. And then the final point that I'll make, 
only this and this referring to the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of his life, the pouring out of his soul, could pay for sins penalty. What does the Bible tell us in Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Now let's take it one step further. Did Christ die on the cross? Absolutely. But he did a lot more than that. Remember that in Genesis 2.17, God said to Adam, in the day, not sometime later, in the day that you eat of that fruit, and the Hebrew literally says, dying, you shall die. In other words, when you eat that fruit, you are going to die, and then 936, 37, however many years he lived later, you're going to die physically. I'll ask you a question. Which was the most severe? The first or the second? Obviously the first. Spiritual death means separation from God. So when we talk about the penalty of sin, we're not just talking about dying physically. And when we talk about the blood of Christ and his death on the cross, we're not just talking about physical things, we're talking about spiritual realities and that's why he screamed on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Father and the Holy Spirit, as it were, turned their back on him. And he was the only human being in all of human history who was utterly and completely alone. As he paid the penalty for our sins. Does this kind of open up the meaning of the blood of Christ? God told Adam, in the day you eat, you will die, in Genesis 3 and verse 7 through 9. The Lord came into the garden, and what did Adam do? He fled, because he was afraid. The one who created him, the one who loved him, the one he had walked with fellowship in the cool of the evening, now he is afraid of him. Why is it when you and I share the gospel that people instinctively want to push us away, shut us up, close their ears, get away from us. Because they're separated from God. That's the evidence. They need Christ. But there's conviction there. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit is sin, righteousness, and judgment. And they're convicted of the sin and they're warned of the judgment, but they don't yet understand the gift that's being offered which is righteousness. So I think that may help explain a little bit the idea of the blood of Christ. We're going to move on from verse 23 because we want to kind of wrap this up. Christ's sacrifice solved the sin issue forever. The sin issue is resolved forever through Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of things in the heavens should be purified with these. What is the copy of things in heaven? The tabernacle. 
you'll remember that Moses was told, make the tabernacle according to the copy that you have seen in the heavens. And it had to be purified, and because it was only a shadow and a copy, it was purified by things that are a shadow and a copy, animal sacrifice. For Christ has not entered holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Why is Christ seated at the right hand of God? He's there on your behalf. John tells us in 1 John 2, 2, I write these things that you may not sin, but if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. What is he doing there? He is interceding on our behalf. He is representing us before God. He's very busy. He's not just sitting, gazing around at the glories of heaven. He is working all the time. I'd say working hard, but it's not hard for him. It's a ministry of love. Being the mediator of the new covenant to us. So, verse 25 says, It is not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood of another. For Think of 1,400 years of high priests going into the holy place over and over and over and never being able to accomplish what it was they were picturing or illustrating. Verse 26, since then he would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world. Now here's our key word that I want to expound on just a little. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let me finish verse 27 and 28. And as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ was offered, there's that word again, once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Let me expound for just a moment on the word once. I've shown this to you before. The Greek word is hapax. We would spell it H-A-P-A-X. Okay. Little points are important. Meaning once for all. Never to be repeated. Something that can never be done again. Used twice here. What I want us to see is something very interesting. At least interesting to me, and so you're going to get it. This word is used nine times in the book of Hebrews. Nine times. You want the verses? No, you said once is used nine times. This word, once for all, is used nine times. Here are the references. Hebrews 6.4. Hebrews 9.7. I'll write these down. 
10, 2 and 10, 12, 26, and 27. This word is used more in the book of Hebrews than in all the rest of the New Testament combined. Do you think the author is trying to get something across? <laughs> what Christ has done, and he uses it of Christ's sacrifice, and he uses it of our salvation. The sacrifice cannot be repeated. The salvation cannot be repeated. For anyone to teach that a believer can lose their salvation and then get saved again, it's impossible because if that were true, Christ would have to come back and offer himself again. As sure as the work of the cross is finished, it's what Jesus said in John 19, 30, our salvation is a done deal. That's the way we would say it in modern English. It's a done deal. Can't be lost, can't be forfeit, can't be changed in any way. Can you see now that the book of Hebrews, more than any other New Testament book, gives us every reason to have the assurance of our salvation? Will we sin after we believe? Of course. Will we possibly fall greatly after we believe? Of course. Does that change the salvation? we received at the moment we trusted him? Absolutely not, because remember, what is the life that he gives us when we believe in him? It's eternal life, which tells us it can never end, but it's even more than that, it's his life. Can the life of Christ ever end? Absolutely not. We share his life from the moment we are born into the family of God forever and ever. One other thing I want to bring out, and we'll end. Verse 27 tells us the destiny of all men. The destiny of all men is what? To die and be judged. It is appointed. This is the plan of God. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. That is the destiny of the natural man. That is not our destiny. Verse 28. So Christ was offered once for all, again, the word once, to bear the sins of many. Why doesn't he say all? Because he's building a contrast here between the world as a whole, the natural course of mankind, to live, to die, to be judged, and those who believe. So out of the all, you find this contrast many places in Scripture, out of the all, the whole human race, there is always the many. That's those who believe. Christ was offered once for all to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. That's the ones in this circle right here. Those who have trusted him, 
He will appear a second time, notice, without reference to sin. The phrase apart from sin would better be translated without reference to sin. You think of Christ coming back. You think of standing before him. We all think of, I don't know what your idea is, but oftentimes we think of standing there shaking in our boots. How am I going to answer for my life? No, when he returns, it's without reference to sin. Even when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, the issue will never be sin. It's not how much did we fail or how much did we lose, it's how much did we win. That's going to be the issue. What is there in your life that I can reward you for? The wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned up, and that's good news because you don't want to drag that with you into the eternal kingdom. Gold, silver, and precious stones are the currency of the kingdom. So Christ was uh, offered once to bear the sins of many. Those that eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin without reference from sin for salvation. His coming is our ultimate deliverance. And we're going to leave it there and prepare two Fridays from tonight because we'll see if we can kind of run our way through the 10th chapter and hit the high points because it is one of the strongest chapters in the entire book. All right. Hopefully that was clear. If not, after I pray, any questions, I'll be glad to try to clarify. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the love of Christ for his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we can't even comprehend it. I mean, when we talk about the life of Christ, that's something that's infinite. Uh, it can't in, uh, fit into our little pea brain. But Father, we can at least understand that it's infinite. We can realize that it goes beyond the bounds of normal and natural human comprehension. How thankful we are, however, that we have the Holy Spirit who is able to expand our minds and bring these truths to us in ways that we can comprehend more fully, more completely, giving us more joy, more security, and more stability. We thank you for our perfect high priest that he is now serving in that perfect tabernacle, which is your presence, that he serves there on the basis of a perfect sacrifice, the cross, and that that provides for us perfect peace and perfect security. Help us to rest in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.